Hi, I'm Brad Parker, the attorney you want but hope you never need. And this is another edition of Bar Talk, the musings of attorneys, entrepreneurs, and other interesting people. A podcast by people who don't have to be famous, they just have to be interesting. Each episode will tackle topics big and small, and sometimes tiny, faced by attorneys, entrepreneurs, and other fascinating people who know every day you wake up, it's a good day. But it takes a little more to make it a great one. Good afternoon. Glad you are able to listen to us. This is Brad Parker with Bar Talk, the musings of lawyers, entrepreneurs, and other interesting people. Today, I've uh, really got a great guest with me, uh, Kent Davis, an old friend of mine, uh, both in the literal sense and in the length longevity sense. Kent and I have known each other for, I guess, going on 20 years, haven't we? It has been 20 years. Wow. That's, that's, we'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, Kent's a, a lawyer uh, here in North Richland Hills. He's got a probate and real estate practice. Uh, litigators call those guys dirt lawyers because they just swallow around in the dirt while we do the real heavy lifting. And that's litigation. what we call ourselves, too. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Kent's got a really great practice going. Uh, he's one of the few attorneys, in fact, he's the only attorney I know who has a sound studio inside his uh offices and uh, that's because of the many things that kent does he's plays in a band he's got a national championship in basketball a thriving practice beautiful wife wonderful family uh he's he's he's, he's the epitome of success it's he, a wonderful he, life is what he, i keep telling myself he has done very very well how you doing? I'm great. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Done anything like this since we did your radio show a few years back. You know, that was a lot of fun. It, it was. We had we had a great conversation that yeah, day. Yeah, I think uh, the only people that ever called in uh, was people that knew me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah or the, other lawyers trying that I to, paid them say, to try to sabotage me. Well, they want to steal your advertising, say. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, the broadcast range on that radio station, I think, was about a quarter of a mile. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, like, Brad, I don't know anything about what you practice, but here at Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe, we do this, that, or the other. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. But, now that that was a lot of fun. That gave me the, the first taste into the foray of uh, a broadcast, yeah. you know, and this podcast. This is our this is our virgin uh, voyage on the podcast. Nice. So, thank you for being here and helping Good me out here. with this. So, tell me about your practice. How long have you been practicing law? Well, we were licensed on the same exact day, as I recall. November 8, 1985 is yep. when we both uh, were sworn in by the uh, Supreme Court folks down in Austin at the Irwin Arena. And so I've been practicing. Uh, this is starting, I guess, our 34th year. You know, uh, behind every great lawyer, there's a great story. And uh, that's what I really want to concentrate a little bit on today is uh, your story and uh, sure. learn a little bit more about you. Uh you know, I, I know you grew up out here in the North Richland Hills, H-E-B area. Uh, before, uh, did Rand McNally even give him a dot when you moved here? I don't think so. Uh, so my parents, my dad was a, a, a builder, started building houses probably in the late 50s, early 60s. And when, we, when I was born, we lived two streets off of Highway 10 on Ruth Lane, little frame houses that my dad started building with money barred from my mom's dad so that's how he got into the business and then we moved up towards uh shady oaks elementary school off of bedford Ulysses road so highway 10 uh, that that was the main thoroughfare through yeah here. between dallas and fort worth at the time it was and hirsch was just a postage uh stamp little yeah. place they, they had a post office and a general store up there on 10 and then bell helicopter comes in and that's where the need for houses and he started building houses so then we moved up off of uh, Bedford, uh, Euless Road in the Shady Oaks area. So your dad was a, a developer? He was a builder and then later a developer and a commercial real estate agent and broker. And so uh, he was actually the mayor of Hearst in 1964. I did not know that. on the city council. So, And then we moved over off of uh, down Bedford, Euless Road, down towards the mall. And so I like to tell all the snobs that I went to Bedford Junior High with and L.D. Bell that I grew up south of the freeway. I grew up in Southhurst. Southhurst. It's the tough part of town, the Southhurst. <laughs> well, it's probably a little tougher now than it was when you were well, there. As far as you know. <laughs> yeah. So we, my dad uh, bought a couple of acres off of Bedford Euless Road and built a house down there, and we that's where we grew up from 1966 and i think they sold that property in 2006 so so you you went to school your whole academic career 
out here? H-E-B. Went to Donna Park Elementary School, which is over there between uh, uh, Precinct and bedford Ulyss and Melbourne down by the mall and Pipeline, kind of in that quadrant. And then uh, they built Bedford Junior High, so we ended up going out to Bedford Junior High and missed the boundary there for going to Hearst Junior High by you know a few streets down to the south. And then we went to Bell. And uh, when did Bell? When Bell moved to the to the where it is now. It used to be Central Junior High, right, right over Kennington Field was over there. Yeah, and uh, they moved over to the new campus. I think in 1966, about the about the okay. first year I went to elementary right. school. So you graduated what 78? 78. <clears throat> um, there was about 800 in our class at the time, and uh, it, it three grades. So it was a the, with the helicopter plant growing through the 60s into the 70s, so many people worked for Bell. Is yeah. that if you had friends, they couldn't believe that your dad didn't work at Bell Helicopter because everybody, everybody else, else did. They're building all those Hueys and Cobras that were going to Vietnam from, you know, the, the early 60s into into the mid 70s. So, what made you want to be a lawyer? Uh, I always thought it was interesting um, that in the television shows and the things you'd see, it didn't know anybody. Really, um, I was the first person in three generations on both sides of the family to graduate from college. So we didn't come from a group of educated folks that had gotten college. There's a lot of hardworking people. And then I would uh, be around my parents and their friends, and a lot of their friends uh, were in the real estate business or they were lawyers. And uh, I thought, man, that that seems pretty interesting because they seem to be doing pretty well. Well, when you graduated from high school, did you know you wanted to go on to law school? No, I was going to the NBA. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, I was going to college to play basketball, and then it was going to be the NBA and, you know, 15-year career. And well, you know, we, we, we laugh a little bit about that, but you, you were quite the basketball player in your day. We had a lot of success. We had a really good team at Bell. We had a really good coach that taught us how to play a style that let us go on and play in college. Um, we, uh, we won our district and got in the playoffs. We didn't do as well in the playoffs as we thought we should have, but we won 29 games when I was a senior, which I think is still a record at Bell. And, uh, we were 29 and four and it was a, it was a, it was a heck of a run. Uh, five of us had scholarships and six won the next year. So we had guys that could play and, uh, it was, uh, it, though they're still my friends today, I saw I saw a couple of them on Saturday night at a banquet, and still hang out, and the, the needles still come out, and it was a lot of fun. Well, uh, you went on down to Houston, I think. After I high did. School. I I got the chance to play mm-hmm. in a high school all star game, Texas versus Oklahoma, which was a neat experience. It was called Faith Seven Game. We played two games over a weekend, and just uh, got to meet a lot of other players and. Um, then I was going to the University of Houston on, on a basketball scholarship to play down there. There weren't freshman teams, so you were a part of the varsity. I didn't play much. It was uh, it was an eye-opening experience. Is that the first time you hadn't been the star of a team? Um, yeah, and it was uh, uh, the first pickup game I played in. There were four NBA players that were playing in it down there. So you go down before school starts, you get a pickup game, and it was Moses Malone, Phil Ford, uh, Scott Wedman and Otis Birdsong, who was from Houston. And it's like, okay, this is interesting, you know. So I, I, the first game I'm in, it, it, I got to cover Otis Birdsong, who was an All-American at Houston, long NBA career, about a 6'4 guy. He's silky smooth, good score. So he gets, we go down, he gets the ball, and I, he goes up for his first shot, and then I go up with him, and I'm right there, and he misses the shot, and I'm thinking, here we go. Here we go. We're off to the NBA. This is this is the fairy tale, and then I never saw him again. The rest of the game, I never I never even realized where he was. He was just running around. You. I drove in again. I drove in to the uh, to the lane and shot a high school layup, and Moses Malone knocked it fourteen rows up in the Hoffines Pavilion in Houston, and I didn't go inside for another six months after that. I think. <laughs> So it was interesting. Uh, Guy Lewis was the coach. He's legendary. Uh, sure. Basketball Hall of Fame member. 
And he was just he was just a character. And there were a lot of characters in the Southwest Conference that time. But I realized Houston was a commuter school, and it's not some place that I I really I didn't like it that much. There were there were inherent issues to being in that program at that time. There's a lot of shenanigans that were going on. And I said, you know what? It's great. I, I thought this is what I wanted, but it was not what I wanted. Well, Houston was just on the cusp of uh, breaking. Yeah, breaking we it we were requ- well. They had won the Southwest Conference a year before I got there, and um, they were an up and coming program. But no one had any idea where they would soar to in the years ahead. And so, in seeing Guy years later, you know, I, I would have gone to four final fours in five years or some, three and four, some just Crazy. ridiculous thing. And uh, a guy said something like that. And when I had seen him again at a TCU game in Fort Worth, I said, uh, yes, sir, but then I wouldn't have had this national championship ring that I have on right now. Well, uh, and I was just about to ask you that. You, you left Houston after your freshman year or was it sophomore It was year? after my freshman year. And you went to where? Well, I, I, I couldn't. Um, I, I had to reconcile having the talent to play at college, but really the the scholarship part of it because sure. it, it made a huge difference to have your college paid for, and uh, so I I had a couple of different options, played in some leagues, and then friend of a friend said, "Hey, go talk to this school in Oklahoma City." So I I uh, met with a recruiter from there in Dallas, and then I drove up to Oklahoma City to this college. It was called Bethany Nazarene College. There was about 1,200 students. It was a church school, liberal arts Christian college. And so I think Houston had you know 40 or 45,000 students the year before. So you're going from culture shock. But I Houston to Oklahoma. Houston to Oklahoma. <laughs> Houston to a you know, big public university to a liberal arts right. Christian college. And I thought, well, I'm going to play somewhere and transferring from NCAA Division One to NAI, which at the time there were eight or nine hundred NAI schools. It was a thriving uh, classification of small college sports, so you only had to sit out a semester to go from Division One to NAI. So I thought, okay, so I sit out a semester, catch up on academics, and then I'll be able to graduate on time. And uh, it was. Uh, it, it was culturally shocking to go to that. You had to go to chapel every day and uh, attend at 8.30 in the mornings when they wanted you to go to the chapel. And if you didn't pass the chapel, you had to take three more hours of reli- religion for every year you didn't pass the chapel. So I have a minor in religion based on my failure <laughs> to attend the chapel. ta- chapels. <laughs> but, it, you know, it turned out to... Uh, it turned out to be a tremendous decision because we met uh, people, lifelong friends. I, I met a coach who was um, a Fulbright scholar. Uh, he was a first-year coach, but he was a he was a he was a college professor. He believed in the education, and I got the emphasis was placed at at the Bethany on the education, and the sports are just kind of part of it. And then we had the perfect storm. My after my sophomore year my junior year we had the perfect storm of everything come together and we had a tremendous team we had um we won 36 games that year this was your my junior junior year year. when did you did you know there was something special about this team when you got there oh yeah you 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 knew that this team was special because you've i've never been around that many competitive human beings at one time, it was everything was a competition, whether it was shooting free throws or scrimmaging or getting seats on the vans or the buses, or we would a lot of times stop in rural Oklahoma and you get to go in to uh, order McDonald's to eat on the way after the game, and you had $5. And the competition was who could get the closest to $5 without going over. <laughs> And everybody would throw a dollar in, or we'd get in the card games. Or my favorite story about that team is we were in Hawaii because Bethany had money and we traveled. We played in Mexico. Some guys went to Australia. Uh, we went to France and played. So we oh, wow. played all over the planet. Well, we're playing in Hawaii, and somebody has a Nerf football 
back in this is 1981 and we're down on some grass at the Hyatt north of Oahu up on the North Shore. And we started we start a touch football game. Well, with when you start anything with this group of guys, it is it's on. And so it's getting ready to come to blows and somebody's gonna take somebody and we're over here playing in a tournament college games. We're gonna play, you know, Brigham Young Hawaii and then we're gonna go over and play Hilo. And uh here comes the coaches running down from the hotel to this thing to take away the ball and tell us that you can't play because they knew this group of guys. And we uh, – that's that's what we did. And we competed on – whether it was a video game or whatever it was, it was always competitive. Well, it, it bode you well because she went on to win the national championship. We did. We went to Kansas City. Uh, we won uh, five games in six days. And uh, we won the first overtime national championship game in the NAI history. And we won 86 to 85 and, uh, against Alabama Huntsville. And uh, it, was, it, it was, you know, just something that we always will remember. And to these, this day, uh, I see these guys all the time. Uh, we, uh, one of them lost a family member, and we were all – rallied around for that in in january and we're just they're just we're just there together that's how it works and so we'll do a reunion here in dallas fort worth in uh, august and we'll get on the golf course and start the competition has now nobody's any good maybe two people are but the competition starts when you go to the first tee you know comments like oh those are really good looking shorts do they make those in men's shorts too yeah yeah <laughs> and and you're you're back at each other all the time but it's okay it's always been okay if we pick on each other or you know we're needling each other but if somebody else comes into the circle it you know i can pick on my little brother all i want to but you can't touch him cuz it's fixing the, it's going to come to blows yeah a couple of the guys, you know, really big guys, I've spent more time in my youth than I care to remember talking them out of punching somebody. <laughs> you don't really want to hit this guy. Yeah, don't. don't let's just walk away. Let's so that was my away. junior year. So my senior year, it was, it, you know, what are you going to do? I, I, it's not going to be – that was once in a lifetime catching fire in a bottle, and uh, you just said, you know, I'm here, I'm going to finish my degree on time and try to make – good enough grades to to get into law school well had you planned to do law school by that time yeah i, I got up there to bethany and kind of found my uh sp- spot in what i liked in the political science realm and uh the you know a pre-law kind of thing i liked to read the cases back then i don't like to read them now but i did back then when you were reading all the famous cases, whether you know Brown versus Board of Education or any of the ones that we've looked at, Roe versus Wade, anything that we've looked at that's had historical implications, um, and and I made really, I did really well in school when I got up and said, okay, this is what I want to do, and this is how I'm going to do it. You know, uh, our friendship has, has been great over the years, and and one thing that. Uh, uh, you have that that I don't, and and that that is faith plays a huge part in your life. Yeah, it, it is, and and I've always uh, respected that and admired that. I was curious did did you have that kind of faith before you went to Bethany, or did you find it at Bethany? It, it's it's I, I had it, and I got it from a very unique place. Um, my uh, paternal grandmother uh, was this great woman of God, and when we would go stay with her, she had a little place at um, Cheeks Barger in 26, and she had a house, and she had a barn back in the back and a couple of milk cows, and she'd had a vegetable garden that'd go all the way to the corner. And you'd kind of go out there in Colleyville at that in you know the early 60s was like being out in the country. And she would be milking cows, shooting the cats with a shot of milk that are out there <laughs> lined up, singing gospel songs at the, at, at the peak of her lungs. And she told us all the stories of the Bible. And I just always admired her because my, my paternal grandmother, Edna Catherine, she was always happy, no matter what her circumstance. She didn't have a lot. She didn't have 
a little. She didn't have too much, but she was always happy, and she always attributed it to her relationship with God and her salvation through Jesus Christ. And so that's something I always admired about. And uh, got to go to church with her, and and my parents weren't as much that way, but it was just a it, it was a spark that started with me when I was a little bitty because she was. She was the grandparent that I would always want to be around. That's a great, great story. You know, uh, the other thing that that I find really interesting about you, Kent, is that uh, you've got so many different interests, and one of them is playing music. Sure. And I mentioned the studio in your your right. law office. How did you get into playing music? I always wanted to play the guitar when I was little bitty, and uh, you know, I couldn't. I I didn't want to. I just I saw it on the television or saw it, you know, different things might have been Beatles or, you know, Elvis movies or stuff like that. I thought that'd be cool to play the guitar. So my dad brought me back a, a, a guitar from a trip to Laredo one time. And so I would start to mess with it and then start to take lessons. But but I just didn't want I didn't like the, what they were teaching me. I didn't want to play when the Saints come marching in. I wanted to play. I want to hold your hand. Right. And so I got to be about um seventh grade and we were still starting to take lessons again and a bunch of my friends were playing in different different instruments and learning and so uh we got to be eighth or ninth graders and we said well why don't we do a band and uh so okay so we'd all get together and it was like we're all playing guitars and it's like well we somebody needs to play the bass because we need a bass i'll play the bass you know so i got my bass guitar when I was 14 or 15 years old. And that's still, to this day, that was the best job I ever had, was playing in this four-piece band that would play dances at the Lions Club or at the Boys Ranch. And, you know, the first time we played, it was like, we had 10 songs and we were playing five hours. It's like, (laughs) what kind of planning was, so we could play each song eight times. And so we kind of, and it was kind of exhilarating and fun. So we just, that was when we were in junior high, and so we just kept at it. And then we started getting better things. And then we'd get these dances where, you know, you're paying 300 bucks or 200 bucks to four guys. A lot in, of money. In 1976, when it costs, you know, $6 to fill your car up, I mean, we were like, we were rolling in it. So we we played, and then I continued to play and guitar and, and do that. And – uh would play weddings sometimes for a singer, company a singer or something like through the through the eighties, and then started came back here and started playing in some bands and doing some recording with some guys, and I got to thinking about it one day probably in two thousand, and I was thinking the most fun I ever had playing music was when I played with those guys, so I went back to those guys and I said let's do this again let's do a let's do a seventies um, um, Halloween party and we'll invite everybody. We'll dress as a seventies band. And we'll get up and start playing music. And that was October of 2001. And we did. And then it's just grown into this monster from that point. So we've been going on 18 years of this incarnation and done some incredible things. All the guys from back in the high well, school. We started with the four of us came back and there were, there was an extra, or two and then there's been some changes so now there's three of us that have been doing it since 1974 that's fun from 74 to 78 and then back together in uh in 2001 and uh we've improved a lot we've added some other musicians that have made us a lot better but it's it's just always it's always fun to get out and play well in fact you uh you got the opportunity to combine your sports with your music over the weekend yeah, I had a doubleheader this weekend. We played the Hirsch Police Officers Association annual banquet at the Hirsch Convention Center. And I don't know if anybody's ever been to the Hirsch Convention Center, but it is nice. It is as fine a hotel-type facility that you'll get to play in. It's well-run and just a really good place. So we played there for the Policeman's Ball on Friday night, and then the HEB Sports Hall of Fame, which I'm a member of, we had their uh, – their annual banquet the next night in the same room. So it was a, it was a doubleheader at the Hirsch Convention Center. <laughs> How much fun. You know, uh, uh, you ever think about 
maybe I should have gotten out of the HEB area. Maybe I should have moved away, done something different. Well, I did move away, you know, when I went to Houston well, and then that, back to Oklahoma, but I, this was always going to be home. Yeah. And when we got out of law school, um, we came back and uh, uh, bought a house and built a house in Hearst and took a job in Dallas. And, you know, this is kind of the area we wanted to raise children in. When you went to law school, uh, were you married at the time? No, I got married after the first year. Where did you meet Lisa? We went to high school together. But we were in a class of 800, so we didn't really – we kind of knew who each other was, but we ran into each other, ran into each other at Northeast Mall. Does she remember you as the stud basketball player who played bass on just, Saturdays? Yeah, just don't call her, but that's, that's, that's sure how it was. And, and so we ran into each other at the mall, and uh, she had dated someone else in high school, and I had dated others. And uh, we uh, – she wasn't dating, so I – I'm going to ask her out and remembered where she told me where she worked and asked her out the next day. How about that? And that was, uh, Oh, 40 years ago, last December. Congratulations. Yep. Very few things in life you do for 40 years. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, we've been married uh, nearly 36. So yeah, she's amazing. That's fantastic. Well, uh, when you were going to law school, did you know you wanted to do real estate? I I thought I did. Um, because of your dad? And well, exposure. a little bit of that. And then also, um, I the you know, litigators are litigators. I'd had coaches yelling at me and telling me what to do for you know a lot of my life. And I kind of uh, tied that with judges. You've got judges that are kind of like referees in a game or um, – or a coach that's kind of yelling at you what you need to do. And like, I don't, I was past that point in my life. I didn't want to have the, 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 you can't get a technical with a judge. I think they either fine you or put you in jail. If you, if you smart off, you're not just going to get thrown out. You're going to get, and a little more significant. Well, yeah. And then being a physical game that basketball was and the competitiveness and, Fisticuffs couldn't, so I maybe wasn't the best suited for a courtroom type of practice because you can't really go punch somebody out after the game. Well, it's usually not good to do that in the real estate business either. No, but I don't have to worry about that. Usually everybody's <laughs> trying to work towards a common goal. If you're fighting with somebody over insurance dollars for some of your client that's been, you know, severely injured, it's you're 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 fighting over something. A lot of times in a real estate transaction, we're trying to get from point A to point B. The, the The buyer wants to buy and the seller wants to sell. And everybody, while you may be picking over this detail or that detail, everybody is still trying to work towards the same goal, which you don't have that blessing in what you're doing because you're having to fight tooth and nail for your clients. Well, <clears throat> yeah, that's the truth. But uh, at this point in my career, I find that lawyers of the same vintage as I am we're really all about the same. We want to just move the case forward. We all know how the the system works, what's got to be done, what you know, what I's have to be dotted, what T's have to be crossed. And, you know, unless you get up against some of the uh, crazy well, lawyers over in Dallas or the millennials or the millennials. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but at this, at this stage in our career, it's, it's really, I'm having a lot of fun, probably more fun than I've ever had practicing law. And that, you know, you you were never with a big firm, were you? Yeah, I was with a. Uh, there was a firm right out of school because um, I knew you'd gone with Miskin and, and. No, no, I was with a firm called Bryce and Mankoff. That's right. It was a fifty lawyer <clears throat> firm that had. When I first started, had three offices in downtown. We ended up at the Crescent, and I worked there a bit in the uh, real estate and financial institutions department. It was uh, it was interesting. But it was a lot of those. There, there's way too many chiefs and not enough Indians, and I just didn't. I, I just that culture didn't fit well because I was gonna. We were gonna start having children. We were gonna coach. We we're gonna be at plays or recitals or whatever we were gonna be at. I was gonna be involved in the community, and that was not gonna be congruent with the the lifestyle that they wanted you to live by owning you for, you know, eighty hours a week or something like that. So. It was a good time to step off. Yeah, you know, that's uh, that's something I think a lot of young lawyers don't realize is that when you go to work for the big law firm, it's really no different than corporate America. No, it's identical. It's the exact same thing. And you don't have the freedom and the luxury that we do now. 
running no. our own practice. Right. Uh, you know, it's just uh, when you get outside of that box and get to do something on your own and be responsible, it's scary as the dickens. I mean, you know, you wonder about how sure. you're going to make income, how you're going to pay payroll, uh, all of those kinds of things that you come to grips with as a, as a small business owner. You're a business owner and a lawyer, yeah. so you got two different hats you're wearing. But, you know, I, uh, I was very fortunate when I got out and started practicing on my own or with smaller group. Uh, I, I was either so naive, so stupid, or oblivious. I didn't worry about the business aspect of it as much as I do now today. Right. That's and experience. Isn't that it? is experience, isn't it? And uh, I don't worry about it as much. I have more fun. But it really is – practicing law is really no different than running – an auto shop or running electric, yeah. you know, my dad was an electrical contractor. You've got to run a business and it's a great business to be in. I think uh, I've I certainly enjoyed it, but uh, how did you find your way through to where you are now? Well, I, I, at, at the large firm, I learned how to do large transactions, whether it was, you know, those that appear in the wall street journal or those that are involved in, uh, um, buying and selling, developing, but also picked up um, a foreclosure practice. It was timing part of it is the foreclosure. Uh, we had a recession in 86 and 87. If you'll recall, the bottom fell out. And just about the time we started law Just when we started, got, started practicing. Yeah. And so they didn't have anybody. They represented a bunch of financial institutions. They didn't have anybody that did foreclosure. So I kind of developed the foreclosure deal. And then it was starting there, – there were some rumblings going on between the people. And I said, I can go do this by myself. And, I, well, I left, and a bunch of the foreclosure that – I was the contact person. They followed me out the door. And that's when I started doing that. And that was pretty good for a bit. But then we had a situation here in Texas called the Southwest Plan where they – uh, the government came in and wrote down certain financial institutions and merged them with others. And then guess who got all the work? The big law firms. And so I was doing a little title business, which we still do, and uh, then fell in with some other different partnerships over the years. But I really had an entrepreneurial spirit about wanting to control what I made and wanting to control who I work for and how I did my work. And that's evolved, like you're talking about the business part of it. It's evolved over the years. I've been back in a solo position for uh, going on um, 10 years. It'll be 10 years in June. And it's it, I've, I've gotten better. I've gotten better at the business aspect of it. I've gotten better at knowing when to say no because – and you're in our position, you cannot say yes to everything that comes in. As much as you feel for the people or as much as you like to have them, help them, there's sometimes you just need to say no. Well, you know, that is so true. We were laughing before we started the podcast about time management issues. And really, you know, I guess part of it is experience and where we are in life. But you start looking going, you know, time is all we got. And uh, where you might have picked up on something in our younger years trying to help somebody uh you're a lot more picky uh, as it comes down because not that you don't want to help them you absolutely want to do it but you realize i can't help them and, and that's 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 crucial that's the key fact it's not a matter of your desire to help someone who can't who's been wronged by an insurance company or a, tra- a tra- uh, traumatic injury with us it's uh <clears throat> we see a lot of it in the probate stuff and It'll be when someone doesn't have a will and they don't have um, really enough money to pay for the administration without a will. It's like, I don't really, I can't take your money. I can't take your $5,000 to get your probate all done properly for you to go collect $800 out of a bank account. Yeah, It's economically impractical and it's immoral and you're just not going to do that. Well, it is, and I, I've come to the realization that I can do more good, affect more change, and uh, achieve more for everybody involved if I'm more selective and picky about what it is I am going to try and do. Right, because the ones that you really uh, that you can really fight for, then you have the time to fight for them instead of you're feeling overloaded. And, you know, we're, we're always worried about, you know, um, the proper amount of attention to a particular client's 
file or case. And uh, then managing the business aspect of it is how many staff members do I need? What, where am I operating at an optimal level? Is it, you know, two staff members or whatever? We, we do a little different practice because a lot of what we do is document preparation practice. So it's, it's volume. It's stuff coming through on a conveyor belt, and we, it, it's not very time-consuming, and the fees are relatively smaller. But if you're making a $210 fee, that's not a, a large attorney fee. But if you do – if you do 500 transactions a month, then it starts to, to be a substantial. It's just a, but it's it's running a business. It's how what are our what are our operational efficiencies that we need to have in place to process the number of claims or cases or files that are coming through an office in a given month. You know, uh, my practice. I, I sat down about, I guess it was five years ago now, maybe four, and read the E Myth Revisited. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you haven't read that book, that's a great book to read. But that's when I finally really realized that being a lawyer is really no different than, like we were saying earlier, a plumber or electrician. My, as I mentioned, my dad was an electrician, ran an electrical contracting business. We've still got to make the payroll. We've got to do the advertising. We've got to do the marketing. You've, you've got to do everything that goes with it. And it really helped me focus my mind on, okay, how am I going to do this? Because... I've seen the practice change dramatically over the 30-something years that you and I have been practicing. I mean, uh, even still to this day, about 70% thereabouts of the cases that I handle come through referrals. But I have found that people, even if they're referred by their priest or their their father or their best friend – they're still going to do a lot of investigating and looking you up and and trying to figure things out about you uh, before they hire you. Uh, What have you found to be the biggest change in how you approach the practice of law, and not just the practice, I mean the business of law, over the last 35 years that that you're struggling with or that you feel like you're you're working on constantly? It's just just, um, the management of what what to take and what to leave, and then how yeah. to efficiently process it. But you, one thing, you need to be real quiet and whisper because you don't want the big firms to understand this is a business. That's so true. You know, it's, <laughs> that is it's so just, true. They can't charge that much if, it's a, if it's, a, <clears throat> it's a profession. You know, it's unlike it. It's not. It's a business. And I, we, we both embrace that concept. So for, for me, from the business aspect of it, it's what's the fine balance of of – what you can bring in, what you staff up, you know, how do you manage your, how do you manage your pipelines or your caseload? What, what does that look like? Is making sure that everybody's getting quality legal representation for an amount that's affordable, and and uh, that when your client finishes with the work you've done for them, they said, you know what, Ken or Brad, they did exactly what they said they were going to do. And they protected my rights or my interests, and they did it at a reasonable fee. And that's where your referrals come from. Well, it is, and you got to stay in front of them. Exactly. Uh, you know, you because you, it's just like uh, you've probably had surgery in your life, and can you remember the doctor that did your appendectomy? Uh, no. Yeah, there's no. no way I can remember that guy. So I think, you know, we've got to take that extra step as a good business owner and stay in constant contact with our clients. Sure. And it's not, you know, there's so much of a uh, – negative stigma i think with marketing uh you know guys in my profession especially yeah. have made it just horrible from the uh strong arms and the you know yeah. hammer yielding uh, yeah, screaming, uh, at, the <laughs> screaming at the camera type stuff and uh so there's a real reluctance on a lot of people to advertise but what i've come to expect or, or, or to understand i should say is that you've got to do it but you've got to do it right and you 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 don't want to turn off those people. And the second thing that I've really come to understand is, well, we were kind of touching on, you can't be everything to everybody. And I read a quote today. It says, I don't have the formula for success, but I have it for failure. And that is to be everything to everybody all the time. It's guaranteed. And it's guaranteed. Uh, uh, that's been a real hard thing to understand. Well, I think one of the things that we have seen over our career span is – the the idea of advertising or promotion or information and i think that coming out of school you're you're hit over the head with barratry and 
you know, ambulance chasing and all the things that, you know, the large firms that we worked at wanted us to believe that advertising is uh, beneath us. This is a profession. This is a calling. It's not. That's changed a bit because I think the way the society has gone with it's just instantaneous. If someone can't find you in contacts or reach you through your website or through that, they're off to the next thing. Well, there is. That's exactly right. And that's why I think it's so important, too, though, is you've got to stand apart from what everybody else is doing. Exactly. Because if in my profession, if you go to those websites, no fee unless we recover, aggressive representation, 33 years experience, yeah. you go, well, I would hope all of that well, is true. Yeah, aggressive rep- <laughs> you know, I'm going to be passively representing your interests, and I'm going to hope with all my heart that the insurance company pays you off. Yes. yes. I, don't, I don't think that works. And, and what I think what people are really looking for is – uh, someone they can relate to. They got to know, like, and trust you. Right. But as I said earlier, they they will not just take at face value just because their father or their doctor or their uh, priest or, or rabbi told them, "Hey, go talk to." They Kent want Davis. to affirm what they were told, and so you've got to have a way to do that. Right. And you know, uh, your website, for instance, uh, I think it is is one of the best websites I've ever seen. It's unique. It's different. It doesn't scream, I'm a lawyer with 33 years of experience and I'm the best there is. What it says is, I'm a real person. I'm a human. Uh, faith is a huge part of my life. Music is a huge part of my life. And I care about you and what, what you're going through well, and how I can help that. you. I, I was I a was, uh, um, website paralyzed for a lot of years because I hated everything that I saw. I hated what I saw at typical law website. Hunter Green, Burgundy, Navy Blue, you know, sitting with your arms crossed, you know, climbing up the courthouse steps. It's all the stuff that I didn't really like about it. And then I finally got to a spot, and that talks about us and our 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 growing as as attorneys and practicing attorneys over these years. I got to a point and said, look, nobody's presenting me with what I want. Let me come up with it conceptually and show it to them. So, yeah, there's going to be a Fender Telecaster on there. There's going to be, you know, some photographs that were made for, of the office where we work. It's not stock photos. We did everything ourselves because that's who we are. And uh, that's uh, – we could do better with our interaction with our website. We're working on that over the years and getting better. But we just um, – it is who it is who we are. Well, I think it does a great job of communicating that, and uh, you know, in that regard, you you don't do just real estate and title work, but you do a substantial amount of probate and estate planning and stuff. Uh, how did you how did you evolve into that? Well, at, coming out of the financial practice inst- institution, part of a of a larger firm, I was you know, real estate is changing you know, loaning and transferring title to property and different things. Well, the probate process is moving assets, real estate or, or personal property from someone who's passed away into their loved ones or either into the ones that are fighting over what they left. And uh, I started that process um, probably 30 years ago or so, you know, 28 and I got on the uh, appointment list with probate court number one, one and number two in Fort Worth. Uh, probate court number one was Judge uh, Bob Burnett. He's since oh, yeah. passed away. Yeah. What a guy. I, I just, I loved him. He was just, he was great. He was uh, no nonsense. He, you know, he, we'd go to hearings at John Peter Smith Hospital on proposed mental patients, and then we'd all go to lunch at the Paris Coffee Shop. And it was all part, everybody's part of the same group and everything. And we were, on the proposed mental patients, you were appointed to represent them in a probable cause hearing, and you were uh, representing them if it went to a trial, if they didn't sign a waiver. So I always had a problem with how could a mental patient sign Sign a a waiver. But that's another another bar talk. And uh, so, you know, and, and we would joke among the staff and, and Bob's position, Judge Burnett's position was, well, if they weren't sick, they probably wouldn't be here. So you were not real successful in defending. And most of these people were ill and needed to be committed and taken care of. I, one thing that that did, it convicted me of my prejudice. And, and the prejudice was this, is that, you know, you need to get a job. You need to get off 
you know, whatever drugs you're on or whatever, you need just to go get a job and that'll solve all your problems. Which I'm still believing that somebody can have cancer or somebody can have a heart disease, but I'm not believing that they can have a disease of their mind. And it just convicted me about, you know, six months into doing that. And that's where I also met Judge Pat Furchell, who just retired January a year ago. Right. He was in court two. Court two. And so I got on their appointment dockets, and that's where I started learning the probate process and met a lot of the old great probate lawyers in town. And you would be appointed what's called an attorney ad litem, which you're you're representing missing or or unknown heirs in cases, or you're representing proposed mental patients. And you earned their respect by how you worked your your docket. And uh, that's what got me into the probate stuff. You know, uh, we, we, I'm sure we can't mention the name, but I was. You've had some pretty interesting cases over the years. Yes, we have. And uh, uh, there was one that involved a, a singer, uh, not from this country, uh-huh. famous singer. Yeah. Can you tell a little bit about that case without revealing too much of it? It was um, just it was hysterical. Yeah. It, the, the the singer had uh, fathered a child here in Texas, and the hijinks just went downhill from there so <laughs> it was uh it was quite a it was quite of an adventure yeah it, it uh, was I, I remember you uh going through that adventure and just kind of like you won't believe what's yeah. happened next yes you? this is the latest in that event but, but, but that i always that, thought it was funny because you're the musician and the probate guy and, and it all comes it all together comes together <laughs> in a perfect storm so yeah it was uh it was it was an interesting thing that went on for a lot of years and it's still going on in some ways and uh but it, it, it's the thing and it, it, the funny thing about the probate stuff is that for my first 32 years or 31 years, I had three judges, Burnett, King, and Furchell. I guess that's right. And then in the last year, I've got two, two new ones. Two new ones. we got two, two new judges in Fort Worth that are uh, learning their way, and they're going to be great. They're going to do a good job. Uh, the staffs are still in place, and it's helping uh, younger folks that are on the bench now. Uh, understand their responsibilities. Has the uh, uh, the business of probate, are, are people more conscientious about getting their estates in order? Or No, what, what people don't crazy. understand about the planning, your planning is a gift to your loved ones. You've said, I, I care about you, and I'm not going to let you go through this jackass rodeo of what happens when you don't have a will. And so what I, I find funny about it is, is that, as a lawyer, we'll, we're going to make five or ten times as much of a fee if someone doesn't have a will as if they do have a will. And so you, you would encourage people to do it, but sometimes you can't get over the mental block of so, – some people think, as soon as I write this, sign this paper, I'm going to get hit by a bus or, um, or the plane's going to crash or something like that. It has nothing to do with it. And uh, you just – you I, I can't tell you the number of times each month that people have come in and said, if we'd have known this was this easy, we would have done it 10, 15, 20 years ago. And so that's like a pat on the back, a job well done, because you're just helping them uh, reduce to writing what they want to do. And uh, talking about there are different firms that do that different ways. You're talking about the different uh, long arm of the law or strong arm of the law and, and, Hammer, and hammers yeah. and anvils and missiles or whatever it is this week with the latest advertising is so often in the last 10 years, someone's come into the office and they bring a three ring binder. That's about six inches thick. That's got all these trusts and all this other stuff. And there's no way these people needed that much work. They needed, you know, a tenth of that work, they probably paid five or ten thousand dollars for this package, and in, and it was not even uh, properly uh, transferred into a trust, or things were not signed right. It's just it, it's a joke, and you tell people, "What did you pay for this? And who sold it to you? And why did you do?" Well, we needed a tr- well, not necessarily. That that's the thing that bugs me is seeing. People being sold a bunch of stuff that they didn't need. Yeah, it doesn't matter uh, whether you're selling cars, uh, real estate, it goes or, back or just legal any services. Other business. It's just a business, and, a and business. it is. That's so true. So, you know, you and I, uh, as we mentioned, we've both been doing this about uh, 33 years now. Yeah, we and just turned over that odometer sure last did. November. 
And uh, we, we've, you've been a great friend. We have gotten together on a kind of weekly basis, at least a couple of times a month, and just talked about and shared thoughts about business and how do we, how do we, everything from hiring to firing yeah. to marketing to uh, paper clips and and uh, pencils. Well, so to speak. it's deeper than that too. We have lived life together. When yeah. when we have gone through tragedies at my house, you've been there. When you've had weddings to celebrate, we've been there. It's it's we do that. We talk about the business, but we that's the thing that's important is that we live life together. Well, and we've got the mindset. We we share a mindset of uh, just like your grandmother, right? You know, uh, she she may or may not had a lot of things in life, but one thing she did have was happiness and, and, a, and a positive attitude. And, boy, doesn't that make a difference in it whatever, you, whatever you try to do? It does. Where do, you, where do you see yourself in 10 years? I think that I'll still be practicing. I think that I've seen too many people that retire uh, and die. they don't know what to do, and they yeah. just die. Or they, Wither. They, they're going to play golf every day and, or go fishing, and it's not the same. So I think that I will work until I'm physically or mentally unable to work. It, it'll be, it may be two days a week. It may be three days a week. It may be one day a week. You just don't ever know how much you're going to do it. But I don't plan on stopping. We work too hard for this license. We've got too many war uh, paint wrinkles from all that we've done. And we're having fun right now. And we're we? having fun. And it's, it's, a, it's an honorable profession. And... I, you know, this goes back to faith. Retirement's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. It, we weren't created to retire. We were created to work. And whatever that work is, whatever, if, if, we're, if we're growing soybeans or we're practicing law, we were created to do something, not to just sit on the porch and say, my, look what I've accomplished. And that's why I think that I will continue to do something. And if it gets to a point where, you know, it's a couple of days a week, then it's maybe mentoring younger attorneys or, you know, trying to be a, you know, a burning bush for somebody who needs questions answered because we've seen things that they may not have seen. Yeah, you know, that's uh, something you and I have talked about a lot is we, we share the same belief in that regard that if if we slow down, we will slow down. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to gear my practice more to where I can still be active and involved but be very even more selective, just laser-focused selective right. and right. still bring in the other cases to let some of the younger lawyers happen. And maybe maybe I've got something to share with them, you know, yeah, a little, sure you little, little uh, mentoring it going on. But uh, I don't know how the heck we got to be this age. We're still very, very young. You know what that? <laughs> you know what that grandmother that we've been talking about? She said, uh, "Old is fifteen years ahead of where you are at any given time." So when she's at you know eighty, going to pick up that lady who's ninety five to drive her to church, that little old lady needs help getting to church. So it's a mindset and a perspective. Well, and and in that vein, I saw another quote. He says, "the the future is what we make it." Yeah, and uh, that is so absolutely true. Well, Kent, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you uh, riding this virgin voyage with me today it, on this fun. very first podcast. Yeah, glad and, you uh, asked me. Oh, I couldn't think of anybody else better to kick it off with. I really do appreciate you and the friendship and then sharing your story with everybody. As I told you, uh, getting ready for this, I think you've got an incredible story. It's fun. And uh, you are one of the most well-rounded individuals I know. And it's just fun to see all your tentacles and different different things. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you being here. Glad to do it. Thanks. You bet. I'm Brad Parker, the attorney you want but hope you never need. And thanks for listening to another edition of Bar Talk the musings of attorneys, entrepreneurs, and other interesting people. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at parkerlawfirm.com or please leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or your preferred podcast outlet. See you next time.